in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Mike, could we just start with you reading something of your choice kind of book? Okay, sure. Just to give us a sense of Thank you all, and thank you all for, for being here and uh, um, this evening. It's a great pleasure. Um, I'm going to read the opening three and a half pages of uh, this Plague of Souls, and it's, it's kind of self-explanatory. Neelam comes home. <clears throat> opening the door and crossing the threshold in the dark triggers the phone in Neelan's pocket. He lowers his bag to the floor and he looks at the screen. It's not a number he recognises. And for the space of one airless heartbeat, he has a sense of thing drifting sideways, draining over an edge. The side of his head is bathed in a forensic glow of the screen light. Yes, you're back. Hello. Welcome home, Neelan. Who am I talking to? Oh, only a friend would call at this hour. The voice on the other end is male and downbeat. It's not the sort of voice you would choose to listen to in the dark. Neelan is aware of himself in two minds, the voice and the phone drawing against his immediate instinct to orient himself in the dark hallway. Yes, he turns and stands with his back to the wall. You know who I am. Well, that's the least of what I know. What do you want? Two paces to his left, Neelan spots a light switch. He reaches out with a spare hand and throws it, throws it back and throws it again. Nothing. Half his face remains shrouded in the blue light. He takes five steps to open a door and he passes into what he senses is an open room. A swipe of his hand over a low shadow finds a table. He draws out a chair and, makes the rest of the, and takes the rest of the phone call, sitting in the dark. I thought I'd give you a shout, the voice says. You have the wrong number. I don't think so. I'm going to hammer, hang up. No, there's no rush. Goodbye. We should meet up. No. Not tonight, no. You're just in the door, you need some rest. We don't have anything to talk about. I wouldn't be so sure. I am. In a day or so, when you're settled. No, not then, not ever. We'll talk again. One last thing. What is it? Don't be sitting there in the dark. The main switch is over the back door. And with that, the phone goes dead in Neelan's hand. Neelan pushes aside his immediate wish to dwell on the phone call. Who's it from? What's it about? He needs to orient himself in the house, where he has, so that's what he sets himself to. After a quick scan through the phone, he finds the torch app, and he sweeps the room with the light at arm's length. To his right is another small room, barely six feet wide, with a fridge and a cooker, shelves along one wall. There's also a solid door over which sits a junction box with a complex array of meters and fuses. 
The main switch is at the end, but it's too high to reach, so he drags a chair from the table. He steps up and throws the switch. Light floods from the hallway into the kitchenette in the living room. The table sits beneath the large curtained window, and beyond it is a sink and a worktop with white cupboards overhead. Everything is flat packed melamine. All these units date from sometime in the 80s. Against the left-hand walls is a three-seater couch over which hangs a picture of the Sacred Heart with its orange votive light now glowing beneath. He reaches out, he flicks the switch. The walls come up in a green glow against which the pine table seems warm and homely. There are five doors off the L-shaped hallway. The first is a bathroom with a shower cubicle tucked beneath the door and a toilet beneath and a small window which looks out from the back of the house. Behind each of the other doors are three bedrooms of equal size with a double bed and a built-in wardrobe. There are pillows and duvets stacked on the beds, but the wardrobes are all empty. Back into the hall. Now there's something coercive about, about the floor of the house, the way it draws them through it. These are doors that have to be opened, rooms that have to be entered and stood in. He catches himself looking up and examining the ceiling. What does he expect to find there? Inside the front door is a sitting room where a laminate floor runs to a marble fireplace with a low mantelpiece. To the left and right of the chimney breast, empty bookshelves reach to the ceiling. In the midst of the floor is a single armchair that's angled towards a large television. Its shape and plain covering make it an obvious partner to the couch in the living room. <coughs> empty and all as the house is, it still has the residual hum and bustle of family life. It feels clean. It has been carefully maintained. Not the raw cleanliness of a last-minute blitz before visitors arrive, but that ongoing effort which keeps it presentable to a sudden need. Neelan becomes aware of a low vibration throughout the room, and he stands listening for a moment. He lowers his hand to the radiator and finds that the heat has come on. The house is beginning to warm up. I'll leave it there. I'm aware of two things happening there. Um, people will see more, but just let's start with these two. That you're very, very precise. It is almost as though you're making an architectural drawing or an architectural report over the five doors, the different ways in which the furniture is placed. But there at somewhere is the fact that this person is phoned, and we're led to, we could be led to believe, since this is probably Ireland, that this is a number of things that we all recognize. And so we think we're in a comfortable space. Someone has arrived in what's called a safe house yeah. in the middle of nowhere. And there's a phone call coming from someone who has something on that person. And so you are setting up a sort of, in, in, in a very precise way, you know, with, with the architectural drawings, but with, with, with the mystery man, it's also as though you're trying to do one more thing here to suggest this isn't what you think. Don't please the reader think we're in a Provo house or we're in a gangland house? No, no, it, it, and, and you're very right about, uh, actually, about, about uh, making an architectural drawing. I, at one stage in the editorial process, I had myself tripped up about where you'd gone where, and I had to draw, I actually had to draw a map of it for, for myself to clarify one, one paragraph in, in one of those pages that I had read. But it's definitely, you know, it, it's definitely, a home, um, whether it's a safe home or not, it's 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 not something I'm, I'm fully uh, fully uh, au fait with. Um, it's a home that he is returning to. 
It is now crucially changed from the house he left, even though it's recognisable to him. And it is a home that is denuded of his wife and child or so, so he has, he believes. And we also, there is this phone call, the moment he crosses the threshold, his phone goes. It's, I don't know, is there any causal connection between those two, those two things? If he didn't cross the threshold, would the phone go? I don't know. If he'd stayed outside the door, would the phone go? I don't know. But he does cross the threshold and the phone goes as he crosses the threshold. And then there is this man who seems to have this strange reach. He says, don't be sitting there in the dark. Um, you know, how does he know that? I don't know how he knows that. So there's so many things that I, I don't know about, uh, about, this, um, about this book. And then there is this thing where he says, this is these, that this architecture of the house, that there's something about it draws him through the house, that, that um, there is something coercive in the flow of the house, that it pulls and draws him through the house. These are rooms that have to be entered. These are doors that have to be opened. Do you know what? It was, it was, I, 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 I opened the file. The files on this go back to in my computer. I'm still at the stage. Uh, you know this, but it takes months to tidy up after a book of that and, to, yeah, to, and yeah. to clean up your room, to clean up your computer and everything. And I noticed that, that the first files with this plague of souls on it were opened up in 2012, okay? So that's what, 11, over a decade ago? And, and I was in my, I was in my, I was 46 or 47 or something like that when, it, when, 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 I would have opened, when I would have started this. And I was actually a young 46, 47. I was still, I was still of an age, I was still of an age to have played video games and things like that. And Colin Barrett was dead right. You know, it was him. We asked him for a, we asked him for a, for a, for a, a an encomium. And he's one of the people who got back straight away. And he said, a singular writer, it feels like wandering through the beautifully rendered yet hauntingly empty levels of some utterly compelling video game. I, I wrote, I wrote the beginnings of this on, and that's what it means to, there's something coercive about the architecture. If you play a video, certain video games, you have to open doors. You, you, doors in real life, you can, you, can, you can leave them or not. But doors in video games, you have to open them and calls you have to go through. So there was, and, and I completely forgotten this. I completely forgotten this, except over a year ago. You know, this book is written under many signs, and one of them was it was written under the signs of kind of video games. And I'd completely forgotten about this until a woman, I read from this over a year ago in, in Kenny's, and I read those exact pages in Galway, and a woman came up to me, her name is Brenda Romero, and Brenda Romero is a legend in the game design community. She's, she is, um, she's a, a Hall of Fame BAFTA winning game designer, and she says, that's a video game. That, that, that's what you've done there, is, is that's the opening of a video game. And I said, oh, that crossing the threshold, phone going off. I said, I didn't know that, Brenda, but there you go. So, I'm not being facetious, but uh, there may be people among us here, including myself, who would like you to tell us exactly, I mean, not, I mean, not what is a video game, but in what way would your watching a video game move into that sort of mixture of the uncanny and the architecture? Because that's, it, look, it doesn't from if it's video games or albums or movies. I'm always watching them with. How do I turn this into a novel? How do I turn this into fiction? I go to my wife is a painter. We go to galleries, and I'm always. You know, 
I'm always looking at a painting and I'm thinking, how do I turn this into fiction? You know, I, even a box of cornflakes on the table in front of me, I'm reading the back of it, I'm thinking, how do I turn this into fiction? Everything becomes part of this fiction writing process. And there was this time in my life when I sat among men of my own age and generation and we played video games, like particularly very spooky video games like Silent Hill. Particularly Silent Hill was a kind of a horror video game and that was that the opening and the closing of doors and that and the moving up and down through corridors, that was a real, that was, um, there was lots of jump spook starts in it, but but the architecture of itself was was a, was an event in itself. Uh, so that's the beginning of the book, and I, I I didn't I didn't know this until I spent ten years now with this book, and I did not know how closely it echoes the opening of Solar Bones. Here's another man returned to his house. A bell goes off. It was it was the Angelus bell and the Angelus bell and Solar Bones. This bell is the phone, and as this bell is is his phone. He's wandering around, he's looking. The exact same opening, it never, you know, and I was completely, I was completely kind of deaf and blind to it and that, but that's me, you know. It's, it's, there's, no use, there's a lot I don't know about my own work and that, and that's fine. Well, Solar Bones is um, filled with presences. In other words, that he got, when he goes home, there's someone there. The, when, for example, there, pouring concrete into the foundations of a school building. It is concrete and you realize yeah. it is a day and every single thing that is happening is actually stands for itself. It may have resonance sort of rhythmically, but, but not in any other way. And what I wonder was that having done that in such detail, I mean, he is after all, uh, he's an engineer, you're a protagonist. If you wanted to move into the shadow of that to see if I went to the other direction, if I went from not necessarily from day to night, but from the pure establishment of things as they are or were into some other realm, is that is is therefore there's a companion piece or not much that a reaction to the other book? Yeah, I, I I think it is. I think in many ways it is. Um, I see it as a companion piece and a reaction to it. It's it's um, everything about it. Like it it, it the you know the the fir first thing everyone comments about on Solar Bones is the is the complete uninterrupted unspooling of it and that. This is written to much more shorter and clipped rhythms than that. For me, I've always thought that that uh, Solar Bones was bathed in sunlight and that this is a much more gloomier proposition, uh, much more much more darkened and somber uh, proposition. Um, it's, it is much more, I, I saw this as a piece of noir. Um, I saw this as in portrait where the other piece was landscape. Um, I saw this as the middle part of a triptych, where the where solar bones is is a is a is a portrait piece, and this is the black vertical portrait. I'm, and I'm going to return to, you know, I'm going to return to to something. You know, I have a third piece to do on it, and that uh, I've ca I call it a triptych. Um, it's not a trilogy in the sense that it's going to be a that there's a, a running narrative running through it, but it's it's a meditation a three-part meditation on building the world, men who try to build the world, or the possibilities of building a world. Um, in, in Marcus Conway, we an engineer, and he really did build the world. He built roads, and he built houses, and he built libraries, and hospitals, and schools, and all sorts of stuff like that. And he also built a family, and that seems to me to be the the, the 
through no conscious decision of my own, my books veer towards the building and the making of family. And, um, and this is what this book is about. It's about a man trying to rebuild, reclaim and rebuild his family, partly what it's about, but this man who tries to rebuild his family. But two men, I think, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. It's only when it's done and you stand back from it, you see that it's about two men looking for very different things. One man is looking for his wife and child and the other man goes looking for God. And um, God says, <laughs> can't help you, son. I can't help you. Uh, so that's, insofar as I understood it, that's what, that's what I'm, that's what they're about. And were you being careful not to make this landscape, just to say in this book, a mythical landscape, and to bring it down a notch into, for example, a Mayo landscape? which you're talking about that strange business of turning the road and finding there's an extraordinary building, but it's a modern factory building that's actually literally and actually yeah. there. And you're not making up, you're not creating a sort of sci-fi Mayo. You're actually in modern Mayo, which these, ex I mean, Mayo is much bigger than it should be. Yeah. Let's start, let's start with that idea. <laughs> and some of the roads, some of the roads seem not to be leading where they should be going. Yeah. And there's no crossroads you can find. You know, in other words, you're dealing with in both books, it's, it's there in some of the as well, that idea of the long road, the long night. Yeah. And yet you're in a real mail. Uh, landscape is hugely landscape is hugely important to me. Um I I, I live in the bot I come from the bottom of Mayo, uh, South Mayo, which is hilly, which is rocky and hilly, and you know, I lived for a time right under Crook Patrick, uh, you know, our national pilgrimage mountain. And, and quite literally, I used to open the back door and keep walking uh, to go up Crook Patrick. Quite literally, throw the door open and just keep walking in a straight line used to bring me up to the top of Crook Patrick. Um, and th so, so that's South Mayo where, where, where I spend the greater part of my childhood. But I spent a very important part of my my infancy up in North Mayo, where my mother is from, and, and that's really sandy and flat, and kind of denuded. It, it's there's no broadleaf trees up there, for instance. The the rocks are round. The whole place has been weathered by the sea in that, um, and uh, and it was um, so a journey. I used to journey up and down to that, and I went through all. I went through places like Ballycroy and uh, Bangor Aris and places like that, and they are seriously, that's the real wild west. You can, you can, you can, you can forget about, you know, Donegal and, and Clare and Connemara and that. You take out a map of Mayo and, and draw a vertical line from, a vertical line from, from Cross Malina, uh, and west of Cross Malina and north of Newport, and that's the real wild west. It's, it's a really, it's an extraordinary place, and that's my mother's part of the world and that. And that was hugely influential on me. But it's an idea of Mayo Come. I mean, it's an idea of Mayo as well Come. Mayo gives itself to, uh, people talk about, you know, people talk about um, Sligo Gothic or, or I don't know what else, but Mayo, our, our idiom is hysterics. It, it has to be. And I say this because I've asked Mayo why there, there are so many penitential shrines in Mayo. We, 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 you know, I, I lived in I lived under Crowpatrick. We seem to need see the need to go on pilgrims, and then there's knock up the road from us, and then there's the prayer house in Ackle, and we seem to see ourselves as especially in need of penance. And in and in my time, and in in my time, 
in my time, two men have, have given their lives to the Republican cause, have, have starved themselves, have gone on hunger strike. Just, just tell us about that. Yeah. Well, a third one, which, a third, in peacetime, a third one, it was, it would come to me, I always forget him, but in the 1950s, the, uh, an Irish a male man starved himself to death, went on hunger strike for the Republican cause in the 1950s. I think he died in the Corrach, I'm not too sure. But in the 1970s, uh, Frank Stagg and Michael Gohan, they, they, went on, they went on hunger strike in, I think one in Pentonville prison and, and the other, and they, they died and their bodies had to be repatriated to Ireland because I think the, the, I think the repatriation of Frank Stagg is, is, is almost surreal, isn't it? Uh, uh, um, the body was dug up the night after he was, uh, uh, after he was buried, uh, after the Garda presence was lifted around his grave, was dug up by the Republicans and was replanted again. And what other county benefited so little from the Republican cause than Mayo? You'd be hard pressed to find it. And then right out, just right out, right out the back door from me, right over the hills, there's a place called Drummond. And one of the last things that one of the last things that the, that the that Pope John Paul II did was he he granted a license to a woman to be a licensed hermit. He dusted down some medieval license. It's <laughs> a, a fact. You couldn't you couldn't make this up. And she had the whole wide world in which to become a hermit. And she chose Mayo. <laughs> and you see, Maura Harrington, you know, Maura yeah, Harrington a couple yeah. of years ago went on hunger strike yeah. for a cause. But so why, I don't know why we do that. You can go back to the 19th century and see someone like Nangle and look at his look at his ministry in Ackle and and see the prayer house in Ackle. You know, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden the housewife starts speaking in tongues. I'm preaching on the book of the apocalypse and that on and on it goes this millenarian this millenarian end of time thing that goes on on in mayo um, i'm not making it up it's, 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 but this is an idea of uh, this is an idea of mayo that, that that strikes me it's interesting to hear you talk about that and emphasize that i mean it's in the book but when you're writing you don't allow that sort of say anything anecdotal to enter in there's an enormous control it's an enormous restraint but also your books this book um, and sort of bones are written in style. I mean, I mean, it's the mm. style that seems to me to interest you most. I mean, yes, Mayo, yes, um, video games, but actually there's yeah. something you're doing when you're working, which is not, I'm trying to tell you what Mayo was really like. It's not, I'm going to give you a sentence that's going to somehow enter your nervous system without you quite being sure where that's coming from. I mean, I mean, I mean, sorry, I'm, I should ask you a question. Is this true? <laughs> yes, it is. I am a great, I'm a great believer in, I'm a great believer in the sentence. Uh, I'm a great believer in the sentence, but I, I, I do believe actually that the book governs the sentence rather than the sentence governing the book. I, I, I will go in search of the book and the book will come back and tell me about the sentence. Uh, I don't start from the sentence up. I know that there, you know, people like Zadie Smith and that generation of writers in England were, you know, made a, almost made a kind of fetish about, about the, about the importance of the sentence. I have great, I have, I have great belief in the beauty of sentences, particularly the accuracy of sentences as well, because I was, insofar as I have a training, it was in, insofar as I have a training, it's in, in philosophy. And I encountered philosophy, uh, and Descartes was my first encounter with philosophy. And we all know from our reading of Descartes that 
every sentence is built on the previous one. It's propositional and it has to stand square on the previous one and you build a gradually growing edifice of thought and progression of thinking. And that was a hugely enabling model. Uh, I tried to get away from that. And that was a hugely enabling model when I started out in sentence writing. But one of the things that governed the sentences in this uh, column is, is I've always, part of what I do is I write out of envy and covetousness, okay? I've always wanted my own science fiction novel. So I wrote a science fiction novel. I've always wanted a, um, I've always wanted a noir novel, so this is my attempt at noir. Um, it's not tough guy American noir where guns go off, it's more French existential noir where ideas are the dangerous things rather than, rather than guns and violence. But noir demands a certain rhythm and a certain type of sentence, a certain shading and colour. And in that sense, that doubles back and that governs the sentence and the style. That's what I mean. So, yeah, you're, you're correct. Um, uh, is, is there an element of sci-fi, I, I, I mean, infusing the... No, I don't know, there's, there's... I am, like, if you go by, if you pass by the Allergan, I always think that, you know, if you pass by the Allergan pharmaceutical plant outside Westport, and you see it there, and it's in its bathed in a bowl of light, it, it's quite something. Could, could, could you describe it? Yeah, it's 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 actually a, it's actually a square facility, uh, and it it makes it makes it made its name making. There was a generation of us that that had um, what's called thing yolks you put in your eyes, um, contact lens. And did we, did you use allergens to allergen rinse to wash it out? Yeah, you used and put them in, wash it out. That's what it made its name at, but. It pivoted away from that, and it now makes about 25% of the world's Botox uh, is made by our than that. It's so improbable to me, and Botox is a botulism derivative and that, and, it, and um, they have to send, I don't know, there's talk that they have to send an arm escort up to knock to get this thing, and it comes to, serious? I couldn't make this shit up. You mean to knock airport yeah, yeah. rather than knock shrine. Rather than knock shrine, yeah. Well, see again, see, you see again, there's this, you see, again, there's this move for redemption and forgiveness in Botox. And that, you know, we would be forgiven our wrinkles and we would be forgiven. So, but yeah, so it's a beautiful facility. And I remember being absolutely, I worked in it for a year. And I remember going into it and being, being absolutely enthralled by these. It was like walking into a four-star hotel. You know, there's plush carpets everywhere. The secretarial staff were done up to the nines. Right behind them, there was these amazing laboratories that were pure science fiction. This is back in the 1980s, and, um, and that was that. Was, it still it still strikes me as so improbable. And everyone that worked in it were the sons and daughters of farmers from all around the place. We all went to this cathedral to to work on that. And up the road, I don't know. Up the road, there's the damnedest thing ever. Is is uh, is uh, there, there's outside the town of Ballinrobe. There's a there two water towers and they're like massive mushrooms sticking up in the sky and um, they're like something from Dan Dare in the 1950s they're dreams of a future past on that and they're lit up in green and red anytime we get to the Ireland final <laughs> and they look, the, they look the absolute strangest thing to see them in the middle of the night and that to drive um, by them in this book it seems to me that you're reducing 
the, the sort of colour you're going to work with compared to solar bones. Yeah. So in solar bones you're going to have a marriage being described in rich detail. The being a father to a daughter, being a father to a son as a way, the phone calls, being a son, and being, a, being someone who works, you know, has a job that matters. So just, you, just say that you decide, why don't I take all that out? Why don't I have an empty house? Why don't I have a wife who's away, who's a memory, who might appear, who will appear in memory? Why don't I have a single father who's also gone? Why don't I have and bring a, reduce it all so that you get a sort, I suppose, something quite uncanny and strange constantly happening. I mean, not just that moment where he puts on the light and realizes, yeah. but it's almost in every moment something is lost. And then you go, something must happen. So you open with, just say there are only five plots for novels. I can't remember, maybe there are yeah. six. Mm -hmm. And the first one is a man or a woman, someone calls to a dark house late at night. That's cool. But then you go, Somebody makes a journey across a country in search of something. Yeah. And so you you're, you're, you're working with those sort of elemental images or elemental structures for, 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 a, for a, I think, to get, I suppose, a sort of level of expression that, 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 that's very serious and, in a way, unadorned. Yeah, it would have been chiseled, be, chiseled back prose, chiseled back circumstances. It's a, it's a novel, um, you know, again, you... When, you, when if you set yourself the task of writing a piece of noir, you're you are constraining yourself, um, and and that's what I wanted. I wanted a, I wanted a sudden book. I wanted a sudden book that would come up on you and give you a clip on the ear and pass you by and leave a black watermark on your soul. Um, and uh, it's it's slightly longer than I would have than I would have wished. I I I was a bit taken aback that it ballooned out to 170 pages. I thought actually it was going to come in <coughs> around 150. Um, and yeah, I, I shore away as much circumstance as I could out of it in that. Um, and that was, that was, that was a, a, an attempt at clipped sharp rhythms. at something possibly inhospitable on in that, that would speak to his loss and that would speak to his, his again to his search to find really just find his family find his woman his wife his woman and his child um and uh definitely a different definitely a different palette of colors very definitely a different palette of colors right out near the right up near the gloomy end all right yeah okay. i'm taking noir to mean the soul or the individual alone in a landscape which is either inhospitable or it's night yeah. And that something or other has occurred that may not be named, yeah. but that has frightened, or frightened is too big a word almost, but has unsettled the entire street, the street, the world, the, the figure, and that therefore the novel would proceed from that moment. It doesn't mean something has to happen. No. So what I'm wondering here is, can you tell me, since I, it, 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 just take what I've said as reasonably, you know, but I have no idea what sci-fi. And I wonder if I'm alone as being one of those literary readers who just stuck to what I did. And I, I don't think I've ever... So could you help? Oh, no, it's help us with sci-fi. What is it? But the the, 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 the sci-fi that I love is the... Is the, is the let, let's put it this way. I love machines, okay? I, I love machines and technology. And I'm kind... And I'm... I have a belief that they're one of the glories of mankind's projects is, is, our, is our, our, our machines and our technology. And I think that, I also think there's a spiritual element to them. 
I think that that our the better angels of us are as visible in our machines as they are in our poetry uh, and in our music, our song and dance. And therefore I see the good in them. And what I'm really interested in is how they interact with what it is to be human. How they, I'm really interested in the way that we make our machines and we send them out into the world and our machines turn around and they, they remake us. That's what I'm interested in. And that's me, what, what, I, what, what, my, what all my, my science fiction is about. Um, I, I was asked to write a, I was, a, a couple of years ago, I, I was asked to write a, 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 a piece on, on um, I could write, I could, uh, it was in, in the, for the Douglas Height Gallery and I could respond to any visual image uh, I wanted and just to write a piece on it. So I, I went to my wife, what, what will I write about, what will I write about? And she said, well, you were really interested in that news clip you saw about how an android built in Japan, built in Hong Kong, was given full citizenship in Saudi Arabia. And I said, I was, wasn't I? Yeah. So there was this android, her name is Sophia, Sophia Wisdom, right? She, and she's brought to, she's brought to, she's brought to Saudi Arabia and she, gives it gives an, an, an interview and so I thought about it and I put it 25 years later I wrote this piece on being Sophia where she has now set aside her where she has now set aside her citizenship uh, of Saudi Arabia in sympathy with Saudi Arabian women because she had more rights than they did and she now lives in the west of Ireland in it where she is she now lives in the west of Ireland and she has a she has become a global sports spokeswoman for AI constructs, and she now works in insurance. I have this thing about insurance. I think insurance is the oddest thing. with our hedge against our hedge against thing, and that's an ongoing project that I have. It's how, and she's she's making an address to the UN about her quest for her own soul. She said, it's, "I'm nowhere near it yet." And if you if you're interested in the piece, it was read by Fiona Shocknessy. And it's on radio. Clean in the Allen did it, and um, it's it, it's it, it's a piece called "On Being Sophia," and it's in the RTE archive, and you can listen to it. And whatever it's like as a piece to read, you just hear her reading of it. She's absolutely brilliant. She's such a brilliant reading of this piece, this speech that this android makes to. So that's what I'm interested in: is how our machines, how we make our machines our mechanical process and how they turn around and they remake us. And that's an ongoing, you know, that's an ongoing project that I have is, is, is science fiction, yeah. Um, I heard of somebody who came to Ireland and read some novels and went to some plays and said, do the men just shout? Is that what the men do? They just come on the stage regularly, shout, and go off again. And, and so I'm wondering if, if, if just in this book and Solar Bones are both novels in which you attempt to do something much more subtle, much more nuanced, and quite revolutionary, in that you have Irish men who are sort of, in a state of wonder, they're transfixed by things, they often don't speak much, they notice a great deal, uh, but, but, but that they are a new version, or another version, of a sort of what Irish men are meant to do, which is go around causing grief to everyone. Go around causing grief, or be, or be sullen, oppressive figures in, in their own house and that. I, 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 don't know if I, um, I don't know if I consciously set out to do that. I know I consciously set out to do something, and I think my, I, I think that my my fathers, are, as a rule, are good, decent men, 
who try to do the right thing by their by their wives and kids and that. And that sets them apart from most Irish fictional fathers in Ireland, right enough. Um, so, but one of the things I try to do is, is, is I write rural Ireland, okay, and I'm fond of it. And I saw rural Ireland being depicted, particularly in theatre, but in other places. I saw rural Ireland being depicted as a place where people do stupid things and where men don't grow up and where where men don't grow up and where they're, 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 they're man-childs and they're inclined to lunatic schemes and they're a bit, just a bit daft. And that's not my experience of rural Ireland. You know, my, my, my experience of rural Ireland is where good, decent people live good, decent lives and crucially, they won't see you stuck. They're neighborly, they're communitarian. Uh, and I wanted, and I set, I set myself the task, okay, make something of that. Let's go with right, that, let's run with that. A, a place where good, decent people try to live decent lives. Let's start with that premise and make a novel out of it. So See, that's what I thought was, people always talk about, about the experiment in Soda Bones, talk about, about how, they, they all, always talk about the technical experiment. I thought the thematic, the technical experiment is a single outpour of that. The thematic experiment is much more radical. Let's make a novel about a man who's happily married, who's good at his job, who's kind to his wife and his kids and that. Go to Hollywood with that proposal and see how far you get. And that, that was the task that, 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 was the task that, that I kind of set myself. For. So when you set the task to have a fight between a man and a woman in yeah. this book, um, I mean, it's very oddly orchestrated. I, or, Choreographed. I mean, choreographed. I mean, in other words, who does the fighting? Who does the hitting? Yeah. It's not what, it, what what you expect it to be. And I'm presuming you're still working on that idea of getting these cliches and seeing yeah. if there's a richness you can get from the cliche by literally turning it around. That the fight scene. I, I'm asked about that less than I would have thought. I have to say, there was there was a time when there might have been a time, in, and in my lifetime where. You wouldn't have been, you'd have been less cautious about approaching a theme like that. But the world has moved on from being blasé about, about, about that sort of thing. So now I had this fight scene, it goes on for four or five pages, and I handed the book to my, a man fights a woman, sorry, there's a man fighting a woman. And I handed it to my editorial, to my editors, and my editors are two women, uh, Lisa and Sarah. And they, were t they talked about this part of the book and that part of the book and the next part of the book. And I said, what about the fight scene? Like you? And they said, oh, it's grand, it's fine. We can see the reason for it. And, and if anything, you know, it's, it's just, as he said, it's boring. No, and I didn't I, say that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't and say I, that. Well, I, the reason, hold on, wait a minute. Because she hits him. Oh, and she got, well, you see, and, this, and I, said, I, I said, are you okay with it? And she said, and I was, I was particularly interested in what Sarah Goff said because Sarah is a martial artist. And she said, yeah. And she said, she said you know, she says, what I loved about fighting, she said, what I, I really loved about fighting, she was a Thai boxer. And she said, what I really loved about fighting was that we took care of each other when we were fighting. We, was, we would step away if we saw each other getting distressed, if your equipment became loose or unhinged or something like that that we actually protected each other, clattered each other, and, uh, and then took, 
care of each other. And she did not see that as a, she didn't see that as a, as a, an editorial intervention. Uh, but it was exactly, I think that's what I was looking for. And I went back and I just added a couple of sentences into it because it is, it's to, it, for those of you who haven't read it, it the, the, this fight scene is an act of care uh, rather than an act of, rather than an act of violence. An act of, and maybe an act of violent care for that, although I think she would dispute it uh, herself on that. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's um, and, and it's, it goes on. It's uh, yeah. It's it's pretty long. And um, there's an image in, in the book um, that's very powerful, which is the image of how he protects all and how he gets her home the first time. You know, the blanket. She well, she she she, she he, he speaks of it. I think there's some self mythologizing oh, really? thing. He's he's kind of he sees a he sees the princess in the high tower and he rescues her and that. And all he, right. Because you see, know, I was going to ask you because it's the only time you get permission, I think, in the book to go into a sort of mythological moment yeah. that's, that's like out of Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. So I sort of wondered. Yeah, the, I, I think there could is. You, I mean, could, 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 could you just tell the audience about the scene? Okay. <laughs> There's a scene in which he, he, he rocks he rocks up at her door. He, he speaks about the origin of, of, of getting all one to come west with him. And, and she says that he abducted her. He says he rescued her. He, he comes to the door of her house. He busts it open. <coughs> he goes upstairs. He wraps her up. And she's in the middle of apparently getting high. And we are led to believe that this is an ongoing thing. And he wraps her up and in it, a duvet. And, and it's heroin. Sorry to interrupt you again. Sir? But it's heroin. It is heroin, yeah. And he wraps her up in, he, ra he rolls her up in a duvet and wraps her up in masking tape, takes her down the stairs. He somehow has a cattle prod taped to his own hand in which he drops three or four people at the bottom of the, the, uh, of the stairs, puts her into the back of a car and drives west with her in the night. She, she says it was an abduction. He says it was a rescue. They get, to, they get, they get home and they, they have this fight. Um, because she is, she sees what's going to happen, so she fights herself into exhaustion. They fight her, they fight each other into exhaustion, not into annihilation, into exhaustion, because it's important that they kind of, it's a kind of a purging thing that she will purge this filth out of herself and she wakes up clean after two days of fighting with him. And you begin in an Irish cottage, which is where, you know, a lot of plays have begun and a lot of novels, and you move it then slowly through, I suppose, mythical space, through real space that is heightened by a, sort of a, almost a filmic way of turning corners in Mayo and seeing these buildings, and then you're moving towards a destination, which mm -hmm. is not the Dublin that, I, I don't think it's a Dublin that's been described like that before, it's a sort of a strange apocalyptic landscape, you know, that dockland with hotels that clearly weren't there last year. Yeah. And that uh, you know, there's something going on in the streets, but, it, but it's not anything recognizable from recent politics, from recent history, or from what people are predicting, or except no. perhaps the third. It's not, it, and, and that whole section then where the, where the um, that whole section then where the, where the, um, that whole section where there, there is this security issue, terrorist attack, which may or may not be coming down the road to them. That's, that's, um, I try to align that up with, 
There's a, a, a time in the composition of the book when I try to align it up with real world events. And, and I stopped myself because I began thinking, you know, this is a work of fiction. It's not a historical novel. Um, if it was a historical novel, yes, I would sequence those events absolutely in correspondence with, the, with what happened in the real world. But instead of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just talk about them. And if they fall into line, well and good. And if they don't, that's fine also. It takes place within this epoch and this period. And I came to that quite late in the, I came to that quite late in, in, in the composition of the book. And if I was to go back now and do it, I think I'd swish them around even more. Yeah. I'd swish those events around even more. Because radically. you're not writing about you're not predicting. You're I'm not, not predicting and I'm not I'm not predicting and I'm not and I'm not writing history. Um, I'm doing the things that only fiction can do. And I think it's important that you do the things that as a fiction writer, that you tell the lie that only fiction can tell. And that, that's, my, that's my job as a fiction writer. People should be able to look at a fiction writer and say, I don't know much about you, but I do know you're a liar. <laughs> and that's your job. That's your, that's your, that's your job. You're, a, you're a, a state sanctioned, culturally sanctioned liar. You're here to twist, the, to twist events so that we see a different it's an open air asylum so that we see so that we see the world in a different way thank you very much yeah.